Hello Hi. and welcome to the second uh, of three webinars leading up to the Cumberland Lodge Police Conference on Towards Justice, Law Enforcement and Reconciliation uh, that's taking place virtually in June. My name's Ed Newell. I'm the Chief Executive here at Cumberland Lodge. And my apologies that we're late in starting. We've had a technical hitch. Uh, hopefully, uh, we'll get through the webinar without any more hitches, but please bear with us. Cumberland Lodge has a long history of working on policing and criminal justice matters, and our annual police conference is now in its 39th year. This year, we're examining criminal justice approaches to addressing historical wrongs in society, in particular, the role of the police in promoting successful and enduring reconciliation and the pursuit of wider social justice. If you miss the first webinar in this series, you can watch it on demand via the Read, Watch, Listen page on our website. And uh, at that, in that webinar, we were joined by Simon Bailey, Chief Constable of Norfolk and the National Police Chief's Lead on Child Protection. Wendy Williams, author of the Lessons Learned Review for the Windrush Scandal and criminal barrister, Matthew Scott. The webinar was chaired by Professor Martina Fieltzer, who's the author of briefing documents that are informing this series and her briefings can be accessed via the Read, Watch, Listen page. We do encourage you to take a look at them. In today's webinar, we're joined by Jonathan Powell and Karen Wilson. Jonathan is CEO of the charity Intermediate and was Britain's chief negotiator on Northern Ireland under the Blair government, and so was deeply involved in the Good Friday Agreement. Kerrin is Assistant Chief Constable for Lincolnshire and was recently awarded the Queen's Police Medal. She's also a member of the Cumberland Lodge Police Conference Steering Committee. They'll be discussing different ways to examine past harms, including public inquiries, criminal charges, transitional justice and truth and reconciliation. And we'll have a particular focus on the Northern Ireland experience. Thank you both very much indeed for joining us. And before I hand over to them, I'd like to remind others taking part to submit questions. To do so, you can use the Q&A function if you're watching live on Zoom or comment via our Facebook live stream. But also be live tweeting and you can submit your views and questions by tweeting at Cumberland Lodge and using the hashtag uh, CL towards justice. Now, it's great pleasure to be able to hand over to Karen and Jonathan. Thank you, Ed, and good morning, everybody, and good morning, Jonathan. Thank you for joining us today. Um, and yes, we've got through the technical hitches, which I think we're all accustomed to these days in um, the, the days of COVID. So the Insights and Truth and Reconciliation um, webinar that we're doing this morning, examining the past harms that including public inquiries, criminal charges, transitional justice, and truth or reconciliation are just some of the areas that we want to explore today. Um, and hopefully this will be a candid discussion and um, certainly around the whole truth and reconciliation area, but please do send your questions in if you're listening in. Um, turning to the case study of Northern Ireland, um, what I would like to do today is examine how we've confronted past with um, Jonathan this morning and as the chief negotiator for the government at the time you were in the the front and centre of all of those negotiations brokering the peace deal between the opposing factions in Northern Ireland. Um, Jonathan could you just 
please set the scene and give a flavour of your work and what came about through this. Yes, of course. Thank you very much for inviting me to, to participate in this. This is a subject I spend a lot of my time on now. Uh, we work on conflicts in various different parts of the world, and many of the issues we wrestled with in Northern Ireland occur everywhere else as well. Um, I think one of the first things to remember about the Good Friday Agreement is it didn't come from nowhere. Uh, Seamus Mallon, who was the SDLP leader at the time, uh, called it Sunningdale for Slow Learners. And the reason he did was that because we had an agreement in 1972 in Sunningdale, which had very much the same measures in it as a Good Friday Agreement in terms of power sharing and some of these other issues. But it failed. It was frustrated by the non-inclusion of Republicans and by uh, attacks, basically, by extreme loyalists. We then had the Anglo-Irish Agreement in 1985 under Mrs Thatcher. That failed, too, because it was only between the two governments and was rejected by unionists in Northern Ireland. Then we had the Downing Street Declaration under John Major in 93, but that failed as well. Now, they all failed, but they all contributed to the eventual agreement. And I think it's important to understand that when you're dealing with these kind of very deep conflicts around identity uh, and communities, uh, you don't get there suddenly. You have to build on a series of different um, uh, uh, threads. And the second thing I'd say about the Good Friday Agreement is important to remember, particularly when we see what we see today in Northern Ireland, is that it was an agreement to disagree. We were not able to get people to, all everyone to accept that the United Kingdom should be, sorry, that Northern Ireland should be in the United Kingdom, uh, nor to accept that it should be in uh, the Republic of Ireland. Uh, nearly half the people wanted it to be in the United Kingdom, nearly half wanted it to be in the Republic of Ireland. So we had to find an agreement that they would pursue their aims by political means, not by violence. But that in the meantime, identity could be reduced as an issue. There was no border uh, of significance between Northern Ireland and the rest of the, Repu the Republic of Ireland. Uh, there were North-South bodies, there was power sharing, a whole series of measures that um, we had to introduce to uh, reduce the tension caused by that identity issue. And it's been a battle ever since to try and keep that, that, that tension um, reduced. Essentially, Northern Ireland was dogged by a very long history uh, of uh, conflict of different sorts for, for, for really ages. I used to joke when we had meetings on Northern Ireland, if we ended a meeting after half an hour with any of the political parties, we'd have got to 1689 and there'd be another 300 years of complaints that people wanted to get through before we finished the meeting. And part of the point was to try and escape that history politically, to put the history behind us that Northern Ireland was drowning in and get people to focus on the future. And that's why I think the issue we're discussing today is so important about reconciliation, because we managed to get the politics to look to the future rather than look to the past. But in many of these issues concerning victims, understandably, kept dragging us back into the past. That's really interesting, Jonathan, in terms of talking about the future focus while still maintaining those identities of all of those communities. Um, and you did talk about the troubles being deep-rooted and going back hundreds of years and numerous attempts to, to broker deals. But why do you think, in particular, um, it succeeded on this occasion to actually broker that deal? And when I say occasion, I don't... Um, I don't for one minute think it was just an occasion of a, a one or two meetings or even over one or two years, because I know this went on for quite some time before you got there. Yes, I think there were two factors that really um, meant that it happened this time. The first is what academics call a perceived mutually hurting stalemate. 
that is not just a stalemate. And um, I went to Libya for David Cameron and I thought, yes, there's a stalemate, let's solve the problem. But that doesn't work as long as people still think they can gain a bit by fighting. But in Northern Ireland, I think the British army, British security forces had really decided by the beginning of the 1980s that they could contain the problem in Northern Ireland in terms of violence indefinitely, but they would not be able to defeat the IRA by purely security means. I think Adams and McGuinness, who had joined the Republican movement very young, probably early 1980s, middle of the 1980s, when they were past fighting age, began to see that this could go on forever, that they were not going to be defeated, but they were not going to win by violence. And that's when they started reaching out first to John Hume, who very bravely weathered a lot of criticism for trying to get dialogue going, then to the Irish government, and finally to the British government with the secret channel of communication uh, that uh, started this correspondence with John Major. So I think, firstly, we had this realisation on both sides they couldn't win, a tiredness that helped us get there. But secondly, I think very important is political leadership. Um, if you think about South Africa, it obviously wouldn't have got to peace without Nelson Mandela, but it also wouldn't have got there without F.W. de Klerk. You had to have leaders on both sides. And to be honest, I mean, uh, Tony Blair talks about this, but Adams and McGuinness were really very considerable politicians in their own right, whatever their past in terms of violence. They managed to bring their movement more or less as a whole, not entirely, but more or less as a whole, into a peace process. And that was both difficult um, politically, but also dangerous for them personally. They could have been assassinated at any stage by those who were discontented. And on the unionist side, although people sometimes uh, sort of uh, find uh, David Trimble or Ian Paisley, um, they don't go down very well in British politics, they actually were very brave themselves in trying to bring about uh, peace and really committed their time. And then in terms of the British government and the Irish government, having Bertie O'Hearn there for 10 years and Tony Blair there for 10 years was really important. Uh, you know, Adams and McGuinness had seen, I think, 12 prime ministers come and go in their times as leaders of republicanism. And here you had people who were there for a long time who were determined to do it. In his autobiography, Tony Blair says that um, uh, I accused him of being able to make peace in Northern Ireland because he had a messiah complex. Actually, it was Mo Molum, if you remember Mo, the rather colourful Northern Ireland secretary, who told me Tony thought he was effing Jesus, which is not exactly the same thing, but it's closely related to a messiah complex. And you have to have that belief that you can do it. I see this all around the world with Santos in Colombia or other people who are leading peace processes. They have to believe it can be done and they can do it. So I think it was those two factors that made the Good Friday Agreement work that time, whereas the previous efforts had failed. So I think in terms of what you're saying there about the, it was the timing um, and any one of those factors had they been taken away, that timing could have disintegrated the progress that you'd made, whether it's personalities, um, whether it's the willingness and the tiredness of, um, and the realisation that a political process is the way forward because fighting is not going to win. And, I mean, you did describe um, in your in your book, Great Hatred, Little Room, um, uh, Bertie Erhern as having great political courage and taking a risk for peace. And was this a, a trait that you saw in the other people who were around you as you were going forward on this? And where did that strength of courage come from and that conviction come from? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. I, the... Bertie Hearn came from a Republican background. His, his parents had been involved in the original struggle in the 1920s. And so for him to be prepared to sacrifice some of the things the Republic had to give up on, the claim to Northern Ireland, was a real political risk for him. He was taking uh, a gamble. And 
he he did it with really good good grace. He was a brilliant negotiator. He'd come up as a trade union negotiator, uh, negotiating between the government and trade unions, and he really stuck his neck out on this in a, in a brave way. I think it's because. He, I think it comes back to this history thing. He, he said that he didn't feel that he was imprisoned by his history in the way that some of his predecessors had been. He could escape from that. And likewise, Tony Blair, he's a new generation of politician uh, here in the UK. He didn't come from uh, that sort of stream of Northern Ireland secretaries we had who were great people like um, uh, um, uh, Paddy Mayhew and people like that, who all sort of guard, ex-guards officers came across as British military officers uh, this was someone of a younger generation. He had a connection with Northern Ireland because his grandmother was a uh, orange woman, a unionist from Donegal, and he used to spend his summer holidays there. Indeed, she made him promise on her deathbed he'd never marry a Catholic, which he then promptly went and did. But the, um, so he knew a little bit about Northern Ireland. But I think he had this belief that it could happen. I think it maybe in his case came from his faith, that he believed he could get to, a, uh, to an agreement and that he ha- had the sort of um, uh, determination to do it. He got very little political credit for it. You don't get any political votes for in United in um, Great Britain for solving the problem in Northern Ireland. But he was convinced it was the right thing to do, and he used his political um, landslide win in '97 to do it. Because the first visit he did outside of London was to go to Northern Ireland to Balmoral to set out a speech to reassure unionists and to get the process moving. So I think it came from some quite deep um, personal convictions, probably in the parts of all players on all the sides there. At what point did um, a decision come from um, government about an apology? So I know there was an apology about the potato famine um, that came. And at what point in your negotiations was that going to be key to progressing things? Yeah, apologies became a, a, a big part of uh, uh, of the negotiation. And it was... And apologies were important because, as I say, we were trying to escape from this history um, uh, and the failed attempts of the past to try and make peace. So quite early on, we were um, the Irish government had, had suggested an apology for the famine. Uh, and I must say, Tony Blair had no, no compunction about that at all and quite rightly uh, issued uh, an apology. It became more difficult when we came to the Bloody Sunday uh, issue. Um, there, the uh, Irish government and Republicans and nationalists indeed uh, were demanding uh, an inquiry. And they were quite right that the original inquiry was a whitewash. There's no doubt about that. If you look at it, it was done at a time of really high tension. It was done very quickly. Uh, and the basic objective was to say nothing was done wrong. Uh, and it had carried very little conviction and actually um, made things worse, essentially, uh, for the um, uh, for the people who'd suffered in Northern Ireland and in Derry and their, and their relatives. Um, when the Bloody Sunday inquiry was going on, and it went on for a very long time, nearly a decade, uh, and cost a huge amount of money, I mean, hundreds of millions of pounds, I have to say, I rather sort of resented this, all this money going into it, this effort going into it. And I remember Martin McGuinness saying to me rather annoyingly at one stage, I don't know why you had an inquiry, you could have just apologised, which was not what he was saying at the beginning of this process. But actually, uh, I, I think I was wrong about that, because at the end, when the inquiry re- reported, when uh, David Cameron was prime minister, uh, he uh, made a very um, frank admission of the of the guilt of, uh, of the British government in, in, in this regard, 
And the statement that he made at the end of the, the report actually did make it worthwhile. It, it added a lot to reconciliation, his ability to say, yes, we got it wrong. We did things wrong. The original report was wrong. And this is what the, the truth is. So I think in that case, uh, despite the cost, despite the time, actually the inquiry and the apology were really important at trying to bring about reconciliation. I think that links into one of the questions that we've had from, um, from um, somebody who's looking um, observing today and um, Kandija Manasir and apologies if I've got the pronunciation of that wrong um, but they pose the question about whether it's plausible to expect a reasonable reconciliation regarding the elements of <coughs> with regard to the elements of truth towards the black community if there's no sincere apology from the state <coughs> and a change in behaviour towards a particular community then how is that going to be accepted by those communities? Yeah, I mean, I know in, in, that, specific, in that, that issue, but it does seem to me what I've learned from reconciliation elsewhere. Uh, you, have to, you, you have to remember that people come at these things with two different sets of history. In Northern Ireland, it was really striking. There were two different narratives of how we'd got to this problem in Northern Ireland. And both sides saw themselves as victims, felt they'd been badly done by. Uh, and so it was trying to get them to recognize the other side's um, uh, suffering as well as their own. Unless you can actually get people to think about the other side. If you're all completely stuck in your own narrative, you never get anywhere. So I'm sure that is true of minority communities too. Unless we, there's a majority, can bring ourselves to uh, make clear uh, that we do understand the wrongs that were done in the past, that we do apologise for those wrongs in the past, and mean it, not just some sort of superficial, then it will yeah. be difficult to get to reconciliation. You have to have that recognition of the other side. And that really in Northern Ireland was the only way that we got to a, a, a lasting peace because people always think there's a Good Friday agreement and it was all done. No, it wasn't. It was nine years more of negotiation after Good Friday. We thought when we took off in our helicopters from Stormont on Good Friday morning, in 1998, we solved the problem. We were sadly mistaken. And a lot of that period was about trying to build trust. And it only happened in 2005 when Jerry Adams finally realized he had to uh, speak to the unionist community, not only to his own community. And that's when they started decommissioning weapons uh, and showing the other side that they were uh, sorry for what had happened about the suffering that they had caused. So I think that's really crucial to any element of reconciliation. Um, turning to a little bit about policing, um, then, Jonathan. So Ronnie Flanagan, who was the chief constable of the RUC at the time, um, and there was a lot of political pressure as well as public order pressure around marches. And how much and how do you balance the politics versus the influence of um, maintaining a safe community for policing when policing should be? in normal circumstances, apolitic, apolitical. Um, but the Orange Marches clearly cover both of those boundaries, both political statements as well as um, public order potential threats. Yeah, I mean, I just had two different ways. One is about policing itself, which had become politicised uh, in the old Northern Ireland. The vast majority in the police uh, were, um, uh, were Protestants. There were hardly any Catholics in, in, in the police force. Uh, the, um, there was the, the, the memories of the B-specials and the various paramilitary police forces who'd been used to break up the um, civil rights marches in the 60s. Uh, policing had got itself, not by its own fault, but it ended up being seen as 
a Protestant uh, and a sort of sentency thing, not uh, for both communities. And the police couldn't really work uh, in most of the Catholic communities uh, around Northern Ireland. And so it was such a difficult issue that we couldn't even really address it in the Good Friday negotiations. What we did on Good Friday was set up the Patent Commission. We looked for a process answer rather than trying to resolve the policing issue in the Good Friday Agreement. And Chris Patton actually did a brilliant job in his report. It was very difficult, but he got a very sophisticated balance in terms of symbols, the recruitment of Catholics into the police force to make it 50-50, sort of the recruitment 50-50. And the report was very contested when he made it. Uh, The unionists objected very strongly to it. It got very lukewarm supportive that from Republicans. But it was then uh, put into practice uh, by Hugh Ward, who succeeded Ronnie Flanagan as the um, chief constable. And he had a difficult time of bringing it through because many of the people who'd been in the police force for a long time used to call the uh, continuity RUC, who who would try and drag it back to the past. Many of them then left and some of them got their revenge once they got out. But actually, he did a remarkable job in transforming that police force until it was acceptable in the, in the Catholic communities. It carried on having to be negotiated, even when we were uh, finishing off in 2006 uh, around the St Andrews Agreement, and even after the St Andrews Agreement, we had to negotiate new understandings on the police uh, in order to make them acceptable in all of the community, Catholic communities and to make it uh, vastly less dangerous for Catholics to be policemen. So that issue of policing ran the whole way through uh, in terms of that. The marches too, sadly, are still a continuing problem and particularly the Drum Cree March, which had been a violent occurrence really since the 18th century uh, and became very tense um, in, the, uh, in the 90s. And indeed, in 97, uh, there was extreme violence. And in the end, the police allowed the march to go through. And the problem is you have a balance of rights here. On the one hand, you've got the Catholic communities who live along the road who don't want this threatening march coming through with the drums and the uh, songs and all the rest of it. And then you have these people who want to march from their church to the centre of town and feel they have the right to march on what they call the Queen's Highways. Uh, so the first time we gave in in 97, or the uh, Northern Ireland office gave in and allowed the march to go ahead, 98, we said no. And that then led to a big standoff uh, between the two communities, which led to a great deal of violence. It only ended when, uh, very sadly, a young woman and her three children were burnt to death in their house somewhere else in Northern Ireland, associated with this sort of standoff. And David Trimble, to his great credit, went out and called for an end to the standoff. And it did work. The unionists then gradually melted away. But it didn't solve the problem of marches. And we set up parades, commissions. And it continues even today to be a difficult issue that leads to flashpoints. Again, it's this clash of rights and the whole history of it piling in. It's always the history trying to drag Northern Ireland back and us trying to get them free of the tendrils of history as far as we can. I guess in certainly in policing terms, then, if um, the RUC was predominantly um, Protestant and they were potentially the instigators of discrimination, but then enacted being victims. And this is this is from a a question from Miss Indadeep Kaur Singh. How do you address the problem when they become more offended than those who were receiving the discrimination or injustices? Well, you, you do have a balance because, you, as I say, both sides see themselves in some way as a victim and you have to be conscious of that. I sometimes find, for example, this debate about Brexit, people forget that unionists have uh, identity issues as well. It's not just nationalists and Republicans. And so you do have to, uh, to take that into account. We had lots of debates on terms of the police about the police badge. Should it have the crown on it or not have the crown on it? Should the Queen's picture be in the courts or not in the courts? 
And we had to have all of those debates because symbols can be incredibly powerful in these circumstances. And you have to try and find a balanced way. I used to think of it a bit like a seesaw. You find yourself going down too far down one end to satisfy one community, you have to rush back up the seesaw to balance it again on the other side. So it is very difficult to make sure <coughs> you're taking both sides into account. Um, moving on to truth, truth and reconciliation, Jonathan. Um, so was truth and reconciliation a feature of the plan for Northern Ireland? Um, and d if it was, did it work? And if not, why not? Because um, <laughs> it, it has been, to a limited degree, successful in other conflicts. Um, so just your experience of that and what are the benefits around truth and reconciliation? Yeah. I mean, I do believe that truth and reconciliation are essential if you're going to draw a line under a conflict. In Northern Ireland, we didn't uh, address truth and reconciliation in the Good Friday Agreement. And it was only uh, towards the end of our time, we set up a commission to look at it in which way uh, the people of Northern Ireland wanted to deal with the issue of truth and reconciliation. It was Archbishop Eames uh, from the Protestant side and Dennis Bradley from the, the Catholic side, the Eames-Bradley Commission. And they went and consulted with all the different communities. And it was actually after we'd left government, they reported back and they reported back saying, neither community of the two big communities wanted uh, a truth and reconciliation process. They didn't want to go back into the past. So their recommendation was not to have a truth and reconciliation process. The trouble is, as I keep saying, you then get dragged back into the past. If you don't have that uh, way of solving the problem, you get Jerry Adams arrested and held for two or three days. Um, you get um, soldiers and policemen being prosecuted for Bloody Sunday or for collusion. And this, this can go on for, forever. So what they discovered in South Africa was you did have to have this truth and reconciliation process where it wasn't a system of justice. It was a way of people telling the truth so people knew what had happened and trying to bring everyone together. That's one of the few places it's been genuinely successful uh, in terms of ending a conflict. And even there now, there's still quite a lot of bitterness about the truth and reconciliation process. Um, on the uh, the the, the uh, white side, um, National Party side, F.W. de Klerk calls it Victor's justice. It says it wasn't uh, wasn't balanced at all. It only told the story of what the apartheid regime had done, nothing about the uh, what had been done to them uh, by the ANC and others. And on the ANC side, many people feel that there was no justice for the murder of many of their members because it was very superficial. People didn't really say they were just getting uh, immunity by, by turning up. So even that case, which is by far the most successful, is now quite contested. In many of the conflicts I've seen elsewhere, they agreed to have a truth and reconciliation process in, in Aceh, in Indonesia, for example. They legislated for it, but it never happened. So they, they found it too painful to go into. So it's not unusual that people actually find a, a formal truth and reconciliation process too difficult to really uh, get into. Um, and that was the case in Northern Ireland. And it's been a problem in Northern Ireland uh, because it means we can never quite draw a line over the past. We keep getting dragged back into it. In relation to truth and justice, then, uh, a question that's come in is, if you're searching for justice, does this impinge on the search for truth? And if one accepts that the two are not the same in historical context, um, which may create a more lasting change, truth or justice? Yeah, that's a, a, a very good question. And I think the reason that in South Africa they had a truth and reconciliation process and in many other parts of the world they aspire to have one is because truth can, for many victims, knowing what happened is the most important thing. What's awful is not knowing uh, what happened to your loved one, what, who did it, who ordered it. And you don't necessarily demand to see the person who did it 
in jail for 100 years. You, you may do, but not everyone does. And so you often don't get the truth unless you have the, um, uh, the reconciliation rather than the justice. But I think that's moved on a bit now because we now have the ICC, the International Criminal Court, which does demand justice. It's not a court of the first instance, but it is a court that will prosecute if uh, the, the participants in the conflict are not actually prosecuted. So in Northern Ireland, essentially, the Good Friday Agreement had a form of amnesty. We allowed everyone out after only two years, even if they'd murdered someone. So any crime committed before the Good Friday Agreement, you could get out um, uh, after just the two years. And that isn't really justice. Um, so now what we have is the insistence that if you had another agreement like this, you'd have to have a system of transitional justice in place. So I worked on the Colombian peace process for, for eight years. And there they knew, because they were uh, members of the Court of Rome, uh, the, the, the Rome Agreement and the Court in The Hague, that they had to have uh, a transitional justice system in place. And this is very difficult balance between peace and justice, because if you approach the leaders of a, an armed group like the FARC, who are very, very violent, and you say to them, we want to negotiate peace with you, but by the way, you're going to jail for 30 years, they tend not to be so interested in the peace process. So you can't do that. On the other hand, you cannot have a system now where victims are um, uh, not dealt with at all. You just ignore victims, have an amnesty, we'll all carry on. That's not acceptable. So you've got to get this balance right. Uh, and in, in, in Colombia, they try to do it. And if, interestingly, the court they established, the so-called HEP, J-E-P, has just started its work and it has convicted or it has uh, arraigned the FARC for um, kidnap, for the crime of kidnap. And they've gone into a great deal of detail of what the leaders ordered in terms of kidnaps and the suffering of the people who were kidnapped and their families. And now they're given the FARC leaders time to re respond and then they're going to issue a judgment on the basis of that uh, after that. So we see now how transitional justice can work. It's very imperfect. Uh, it's hated by those in the right in Colombia because it... Um, uh, uh, it affects the army and security forces too, and they feel it should only affect the guerrillas. But obviously, you can only do it if you have a balance. Uh, and it's hated because they say the justice that's being imposed on the FARC will be uh, too mild. It'll be a restorative justice. It will be reparations. It will be a house arrest. It won't be 18 years in jail. And so even that is very controversial. But if you don't have this balance, then you're going to have many more victims in the future because you can't get to peace agreements if you're not prepared to have some system uh, that's acceptable to the guerrillas as well as to the government. So it's a very, very thorny issue, this balance between peace and justice. Yeah, and I think the um, certainly one of the quotes from um, that you're attributed to saying is that released prisoners are the best ambassadors for a peace process. What do you actually mean by that? Well, what we experienced in Northern Ireland, I mean, Adams and McGuinness used to tell us that actually the people who came out were the ones who were uh, keenest to get to peace. And many of them had spent their time in uh, the maze or H blocks, uh, getting educated, understanding that the conflict by itself wasn't going to succeed. And they would come out and they'd become um, advocates for it. Even on the loyalist side, Gusty Spence, one of the original loyalists, uh, they called what he ran in the H-Blocks the uh, University of Gusty Spence. And he taught people, despite having been a murderer himself, that they, and whatever they'd done, when they went out, they should be going out and arguing for peace because their community was suffering as well as their enemies in the other community. So pretty often, certainly in Northern Ireland, it was those who'd done time in jail who came out and actually pushed for it rather than those who'd stayed on the outside. And you see that, frankly, uh, everywhere else around the world. It's those who've, um, I mean, the most famous person 
in a category of his own would be Nelson Mandela, who was in jail and negotiated with the apartheid regime from inside jail without telling his colleagues what he was doing. So it is quite often those people who have been to jail, and he learned to Afrikaans in jail as well, to, in order to be able to communicate with them. So it's those who've been in jail who quite often come out as the best ambassadors, those who've had the time to think it through, who've time to have remorse and to realise that violence isn't the answer. That's what we see in Northern Ireland and what we've seen elsewhere around the world. So in relation to um, the prisoner releases, etc., and you have touched a little bit on victims' rights, but how do you um, involve victims in some of the decisions which are going to impact on their long-term health and recovery from some of the atrocities that they might have suffered? In Northern Ireland, this has been done um, on a sort of uh, case-by-case basis, often with NGOs, charities working on it, bringing together victims and the perpetrators when they're willing to do so. And when they do, it can be really quite powerful. Um, it's very difficult, but it does help to, um, uh, uh, to, to, to bring the two sides uh, together. In Colombia, we went a step further and actually brought the victims to the negotiating table. So we, uh, the, we, I think it was the UN and two of the universities in Colombia chose the participants from the victims to come and actually uh, set out their views to the people who had caused their suffering, so the leaders of the FARC and, and the leaders of the government, because there are victims on both sides in these, in these conflicts. And that was very powerful. And I remember going to the signing ceremony for the uh, agreement in Cartagena, and I was actually sitting next to two women who had around their necks pictures of their sons who'd been killed by the FARC uh, and the dates of their death and so on. And I was sitting next to them, and uh, they were very emotional the whole way through the whole ceremony. But when the FARC leader finally stood up and apologized for what, and asked for forgiveness uh, for what he'd done and what his people had done. These women sh- jumped to their feet in tears, and it was very emotional watching them do that for them. And I talked to them afterwards, and they did feel it was a sort of um, uh, a cathartic moment that they actually felt that they had uh, uh, they'd heard what they needed to hear about this. So I think if you can involve victims in the process itself, uh, that can be uh, e- extremely powerful. Um, it has a real impact. I mean, I was thinking um, the, in uh, the, the um, Warrington bombs, uh, they killed those two young, uh, those two young boys because uh, they had one bomb at one end of the high street, another bomb at the other end, and everyone ran from one bomb straight into the other bomb. And um, um, i trying to remember Colin's second name, but uh, Colin, who was the father of Tim, uh, come back to me a sec, uh, who, who was blown up, he was uh, nine years old, was blown up by that bomb. And it was interesting to me because he said to me that if he had known... Uh, the British government was talking to the IRA. This was the time of John Major, when John Major was corresponding with the IRA. If he'd known the British government was corresponding with the IRA at that time, he'd have been very angry. But three months later, he was delighted when he found out they were doing that because he realised Tim hadn't died in uh, in vain. And he then set up a peace centre in Warrington that's still there, trying to work on reconciliation. So you can turn some of the suffering of victims into a positive way of bringing about reconciliation if you approach it in the right way. But it's usually best if it's uh, I, I like the idea of involving the process in terms of Colombia. There's also a case for doing it closer to the ground, being done by charities and, and local NGOs who can really get people to relate to it. Um, and just expanding a little bit wider on that, so that victims specifically, but um, this is a question that's come in, is what do you see the role of community groups or civil society in supporting the rebuilding of trust in the state or in police institutions? Um, and do you see civil, 
civil society's involvement of particular relevance in divided communities? Oh, absolutely. Yes. No, I mean, it's fundamental. Um, you know, if you think back in Northern Ireland, the women's movement, um, various efforts by um, clergy, but also by business leaders to try and bring the two communities together were fundamental. You can't just have peace top down by kind of have governments meet and say, OK, that's peace. You just got to rebuild it. Now, we're working in Afghanistan at the moment. And you think about Afghanistan, you can, even if we come to an agreement between the Taliban and the Afghan government, every village is divided trying to get Taliban fighters to go back into a village that's going to be held to pay unless there can be some sort of local reconciliation. So finding a way in which civil society can build from the bottom up, if you like, as governments are building from the bottom down is crucial to making this work. And certainly in terms of the, the, the really hard work of reconciliation, which doesn't happen overnight. You, know, you can sign an agreement tomorrow, but reconciliation and peace building more generally takes a very long time. And that's where you need to involve civil society, absolutely. Um, if we can approach um, historical crimes and what or um, explore a little bit more about the approaches to dealing with that. So in particular, those where the state have allegedly been con colluded in or been responsible for um, crimes. And you've already mentioned the Bloody Sunday um, inquiry was hundreds of millions of pounds and they can be hugely expensive. But do you think that they will provide the answer? Um, I know you've got one experience of Bloody Sunday, but what's your wider experiences? Yeah, this is a very difficult subject. Um, the, we now have these historical crimes being investigated in, in Northern Ireland. It's taking a huge amount of police time, money and effort, <clears throat> which frankly we better spent on preventing uh, new attacks by some dissident Republicans and dealing with some of the crime associated with loyalists. Uh, I, I personally think there is a case for trying to draw a line under this and say that we've done what we can done, do on looking at these historical crimes. We're going to now focus our resources and our effort on the future. And the reason I think that is it's very hard to do it in an unbalanced way. You can't say we're only going to investigate the crimes by the police and the uh, security forces. And we can't say that we're going to exclude the security forces and only investigate the crimes by the terrorists. Um, because otherwise you're simply just going to unbalance the whole thing and, and, and start new grievances. You know, we tried, first of all, we tried to deal with this issue of so-called on the runs. You had these people who were IRA members who committed crimes but had never been convicted, who were living in exile in the United States and Ireland and elsewhere. And Sinn Féin wanted to negotiate that they would have a process for them to be either to know if they were wanted, in which case they, if they weren't, they could come back, and if they were wanted to, to try and deal with the crimes. We tried to legislate on this, to legislate for both sides, the army and the police, and for, for the people on the run. Uh, Sinn Féin, when we introduced legislation, said they wouldn't support it because it was dealing with the police and the army. We had to drop it. And uh, now we have the Conservative Party saying they're going to legislate for the army and the police, but not for the... And that's not going to work either. So I, I think, to be honest, I think this is a very, very hard thing. But unless you find some way of drawing that line, we're just going to find ourselves always uh, bogged down in this uh, drag back to the past. In terms of the specific inquiries, I mean, we've had loads of inquiries because we negotiated a series of them, some of them on very specific crimes, one in, um, in Lurgan, um, uh, I forget the name of the, the guy who was killed by a mob. But there the are a whole series of specific crimes that people wanted us to investigate. Some of them gave satisfaction, some didn't. One of the most obvious is the Finnecane case where uh, uh, this lawyer was, um, uh, Catholic lawyer was murdered in his home. 
it looks as if uh, with collusion from the security forces, unclear which security forces. When we were in government, we tried to have an inquiry into that. I met with the family a number of times. We tried to, led, to, to uh, set up the inquiry in the right sort of way. We actually legislated at the time. The inquiry's legislation comes from that. But it didn't satisfy them. And I can understand why, because it couldn't have access to the security services um, material on it. So in the end, the, the Finnegan inquiry became and still is a running sore rather than actually a way of solving the problem. And too often the inquiries don't satisfy people. They don't draw a line. Bloody Sunday was fairly unusual in that it did help. It helped the reconciliation, partly because of the way that David Cameron dealt with it. Too often, the inquiries just drag us back. But I do think investing huge amounts of police time, money and effort in, the, uh, uh, in these investigations tends not to provide satisfaction for the, the victims and simply is a way of pulling us back when we try, try and look forward. It's not an easy subject, but I think I've come to the conclusion it, it would be a brave politician to do it, but it'd be the right thing to do to try and draw that line. We've got a question from um, Rob Beckley in um, connection with this particular area. And he says, Bloody Sunday has been one of the catalysts for the Armed Forces Bill. There were early calls for a statute of limitations on crimes committed by the Armed Forces. And while these have been watered down, do you think that there is a case for limiting culpability of those accused on historic crimes on both sides of the Troubles? Um, but also what principles do you apply to making the decision to limit crim criminal liability for conflicts? And how do you decide which conflicts they apply to? Yeah, uh, a very uh, difficult uh, question, as I've described. I think um, I try and sort of slightly cop out because I don't know exactly how you should try and deal with this, but there are quite a lot, many, there are many people from the old, from the PSNI, people like um, Peter Sheridan, who was the former uh, Deputy Chief Constable, um, the most senior Catholic in the, uh, the police at the time of the Troubles, who have some, some really uh, wise thoughts about this. But I think trying to deal with, as I said, with just one side of this, if you just say, okay, we're going to have an amnesty for the uh, police and the army, but not for the other side, that's not going to work. Because uh, you're just going to be setting up more conflict with um, the people who feel left out. Uh, likewise, when Sinn Féin wanted us only to uh, have an amnesty for, for the terrorists and not for the police and the army, that's not going to satisfy people because then it's incredibly unfair on those in the security forces who risk their lives uh, and had to make <coughs> very difficult decisions on the spot to find themselves decades later, often at a very old age, uh, answering for those crimes. So I think the only way is to try and come up with a something that's basically accepted by the majority of the community that says we will no longer, there is a statute of limitations. Uh, crimes obviously since the agreement, that's that, uh, since the Good Friday Agreement, which is after all quite a while, what, um, 98, so uh, um, 22, 23 years ago, it's a long time ago. That could be your statute of limitations. So crimes before that, we can no longer consider. We're sorry for victims. You probably need to have a truth and reconciliation process to go with that to satisfy people so you can at least find out what happened. Because there are some awful murders in bars and so on, some terrible things that people still really want to know what happened to their loved ones. So I'm not pretending for a second this is an easy thing, and I don't have the hard and fast rules. But if you had a brave politician, that's what they would try and do and allow the community in Northern Ireland to move on. And in relation to such investigations, another question that's come in, um, when some of the, um, the main protagonists of some of these crimes are law enforcement agencies, who should actually carry out those investigations into the state? 
Yeah, well, you, you have to have someone who is regarded as independent. Uh, quite a few in Northern Ireland would be done by uh, retired chief constables or even serving chief, chief constables as a stalker inquiry, of course, uh, way back. So that, and even those have not gone smoothly, uh, to tell you the truth. Other ones we've done with judges to bring judges in to try and bring it. And sometimes you can have uh, neutral figures. The basic point is you need to find someone who uh, has the trust of both communities. So they need to have the trust of the security forces if they're going to be allowed to investigate it and look at their files. But they also need to have the trust of the uh, victims if they are victims on the other side who've, uh, who've been brought back. And there is no doubt that things went wrong uh, in Northern Ireland in terms of collusion. Uh, there's absolutely no doubt about that. And we've never really been able to investigate it properly. One of the actual best things that's been done, and it's a very good series of documentaries on BBC Northern Ireland uh, on the Troubles. It's about uh, 10 parts. So it really goes into the detail. And they really did manage to dig into some of these things and see what, what happened. And in a way, that's almost better than being able to, in terms of um, addressing the, 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 the suffering of the victims rather than uh, just yet more inquiries. Sometimes inquiries work like Bloody Sunday, but too often, like Finucane, they lead to more disappointment rather than solving the problem. Thank you for that. Um, I'm just very conscious of the time. And, um, and although we started a little bit late, um, I'd just like to do um, a, a sum up of what are your feelings around how your involvement was? And are there any particular takeaways from that that you would really like to have done differently or um, would, in hindsight and your um, experience elsewhere in the world, would have liked to have tried in Northern Ireland? Yeah, well, when, um, when, when I finished in government in 2007, they allowed me to go back over all the files in number 10 from uh, 97 to 2007. And when you read through those files, you really felt that, God, we could have done this a whole lot quicker if we'd just not gone down all these dead ends, if we'd found a way to, 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 to do it. Actually, I'm not sure that's right. I think the reason it took so long, the reason negotiating the implementation of the Good Friday Agreement, negotiating uh, police force, uh, policing that was consented by all communities, it does take time because it's about building trust. It's not just a piece of paper. People don't trust things anymore because it's a piece of paper. It's only when people start to do things differently. So I think this notion of implementation is perhaps one of the most important things I've learned, that... People sign agreements. Like if you think about the Oslo Accords for the Middle East, people go and sign a big agreement. There's lots of hoo-ha, people celebrate, and then it's never implemented. And actually it gets worse and you go into the second intifada. And what people really, when I talk to people in Afghanistan or in, in well, until recently in Myanmar, in Venezuela, in Colombia, you need to think about the implementation when you're doing the peace negotiation. How are you actually going to put this into practice? How are you going to build trust on both sides as you do it? That is the really uh, crucial aspect. And having a process, you know, if I look back at the um, Northern Ireland thing, the most important thing was keeping the peace process going. Too often in the past, it had been broken. We'd shut it down. We'd do something different. And actually keeping it going is the most important thing. Shimon Peres, the uh, former Israeli president, had a really good one-liner for this. He said, in the Middle East, we know what the outcome is going to be in terms of Arab-Israel peace uh, agreement, but we don't have a process. He said, the good news is there's light at the end of the tunnel. The bad news is there's no tunnel. And his point was, we know the substance may be okay, but there's no process. So I think the thing I've learned most of all, and this applies too to reconciliation and to dealing with historical crimes, have a process that people feel that 
it is moving forward, that they can get engaged, that they get, there is a hopeful answer. It's not just a blank wall where you're going to um, uh, be frustrated. I think that is the single most important thing that I see around the world. Thank you very much for that, Jonathan. That's excellent. It's really fascinating discussion. And I'm sure we could probably keep you here all day if, um, if we were allowed to. Um, so certainly some of the, the takeaways, not just on those big conflicts and those historic things, are also about how do we deal with policing in the current context um, locally, whether it's on an individual basis or a, a, a big conflict basis, is something that we do, really do need to, to take away and consider. But certainly the patience and the bravery of everybody involved, the courage, the moral courage, as well as the physical courage, to be able to stand stem themselves all the way through that's been really um, quite fascinating to, to hear about and read about in your books um, so thank you for that Ed um, sorry thank you for that Jonathan Ed Ed, did you want to come in there thanks so much Carol I do think and um, I just need oh. to come back on I come back on my screen I've seen I, uh, I've been there we are. Thank you. Well, thank you very much indeed, both of you. I thought that was a really fascinating and important discussion. Um, not just intrinsically interesting, but it's going to be really helpful as we shape our next piece of work for our conference and the report that will come out of that, which we will make sure is widely shared and, um, and widely disseminated. So absolutely thank you all i can say before we end just a couple of uh, quick announcements um if you'd like to get alerts uh, about forthcoming webinars including the final webinar in this series on towards justice you can sign up on the keep in touch page uh, of the cumberland lodge website or simply email us at inquiries at cumberlandlodge.ac.uk and just to flag up that the next webinar takes place on Thursday, the 25th of February at 11 a.m. on victim perspectives on past injustices. So it's a natural follow-on from what we've been discussing. And we'll be joined by Dame Vera Baird, Victims Commissioner for England and Wales, and Assistant Commissioner uh, Robert Beckley, Overall Command of Operation Resolve, the criminal investigation into the deaths of 96 people at the Hillsborough Stadium in Sheffield on the 15th of April, 1989. Rob, if you've just heard the name, Rob submitted a question earlier on. Rob is also involved in setting up this uh, annual police conference. And with that conference in mind, we're also taking inquiries for it. Um, if you'd like to email us, we can, uh, we can make sure that uh, we respond and tickets will be on sale shortly. For those of you who are PhD students, applications for our bursary places are available and you can download the application on the event page of our website. And finally, I'd like to highlight that like all charities, Cumberland Lodge is facing difficult times during the pandemic. If you found today's uh, event helpful, interesting, and would like to support our wider work, we'd be very grateful if you considering, consider making a small donation, which you can do via our Just Giving page and we're gonna put the link up immediately after the webinar. Thank you all very much indeed. Thank you for our speakers and thank you for all who've participated and uh, goodbye. Thank you. Thank you, bye-bye.